ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. I am your host, Chris George, the birthday man, Zuger. And uh, to my right across the table is Big Sexy Alex. We call him Big Sexy because the ladies love him. Say hello, Alex. How you doing? And he hates it. <laughs> and he does hate it, but <laughs> the fans love it. And this is why we do it every single week. And it makes you smile, so why not? Uh, you've reached the den of lore, and uh, please do pull your chairs up to the fire, grab your glasses of scotch, and uh, do join us in learning some very cool shit courtesy of uh, Scott Crichton. Uh, we're going to be talking the Pyramid Hoax here on episode 33. Uh, it is the 13th of April, 2017, and it is my birthday episode. Happy birthday to me. This is why I got. Uh, this is why I got the fourteen-year scotch. Scott, Scotty and I might sing you happy birthday. Oh, please do not sing me happy birthday. I actually have a birthday song on here. I think I, I may have a birthday song on here. So uh, please do subscribe to the channel, and uh, you know what? If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, follow us at Den of Lore. And uh, most importantly, if you would like to be able to support the show and make sure that we can stay 100% ad and uh, uh, interruption-free, uh, click go to denoflore.com and click support the show. And, you know, if everyone sent us $1 who listens to the show and we've got uh, thousands of listeners around the world, we could do this five days a week instead of just once a week. And, uh, you know, I know Alex would be very happy to be on the air with that very sexy voice of his. So, uh, please, do support the show. Uh, I know that we have uh, uh, quite a few supporters who have been uh, sending us some love. And I just wanted to be able to read their names out. Now, uh, Doug Keenan, being one of them, who is one of our Patreon uh, sponsors. And thank you very much for that. And most of all, I would also like to be able to thank, if my internet would... How's your spring going? Chris? Uh, my, my spring's going not too bad, but uh, just I'm trying to be able to bring up names here. You know, I should actually write this down instead of trying to use digital. We'll, <laughs> we'll circle back to that. Maybe. We'll circle back. You know, El- Ella McCurdy, thank you very much for, for all of your love and your support uh, over the last couple of weeks. You are one of our most val- one of our valued listeners and uh, one of the people we like the most because, well, you are awesome in here every single week in the chat room and. <laughs> and uh, yes, you're in there right now. Thank you very much, Ellen, for the ha- happy birthday uh, wishes. Uh, now I'm going to invite our guest onto the air. I know that we have uh, been talking over Skype while we've been doing sound uh, sound check, and I'm very happy to say that our sound is actually working today. And now we've got the studio set up, so I'm just going to switch over here. Uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. We're still working out the camera situation, although I think we've got one that actually works. Now, uh, Scott Crichton is um, somebody we've been actually trying to get on the show for uh, quite a while because, well, he is that awesome. Uh, Scott Crichton, uh, well, he's an engineer who has extensively traveled, and uh, that's allowed him to explore many of the world's ancient sacred sites. Uh, the host of the, uh, he's also the host of the Alternative Egyptology Forum on AboveTopSecret.com, uh, and he lives in Glasgow, Scotland. Now, I- I've been to um, AboveTopSecret.com a lot of the times. It's one of my favorite websites, and knowing that he runs that, uh, uh, that particular forum, go check it out. Uh, tons of information on there. Now, speaking before before we we start the program, just to be able to to to, to say, if you notice above me right here, uh, you know that if, since we're talking about Egypt, Magical Egypt Two is coming out, 
and we are helping to promote as uh, our very uh, uh, very good man John Anthony West uh, a lot of the work is based off or a lot of the series is based off his research and as well as the first one so if you'd like to be able to save 10% please do not hesitate to go to magicalegypt.com forward slash collections forward slash the dash new dash series that's magicalegypt2.com forward slash collections forward slash the dash new dash series promo code is scotch and that way you will be able to save 10% not off scotch but 10% off of magical Legion <laughs> 2 <laughs> Scott Crichton welcome to the show how are you doing today I'm doing very well Chris it's uh, good to be talking to you and b- before we continue I should say many happy returns to you on your birthday today well again thank you very much I, I was um when we booked booked you for the show, and I'm like, like, oh, we get to have Scott Crichton on my birthday. Like, yes, <laughs> this is going to be awesome. Uh, it, it is an honor. And I just pleasure. wish I, I just wish I had a bottle of scotch to share it with you. What? Oh well, yeah, oh, man. Well, that's that's fine. I, I will drink. I will drink to your health as well as to mine. We'll just cheers and through cheers. cyberspace. And, yeah. Cheers through slange, cyberspace. Slange, slange, slange. <laughs> We've got a good 14 year uh, space side. Uh, oh, that's very nice. Very nice. Well, I was going to go with the 15 year, but the extra, you know, it's. it's yeah. Like, eh. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and uh, we've got uh, a, a couple people who are in the, the chat room. I want to be able to give a quick shout out to Kevin, uh, who is one of our supporters who did support us this week. And again, Kevin and your girlfriend, thank you very much um, uh, as well. And also, uh, for everybody who is tuning in uh, right now and who's in the chat, Yes, we are going to be having a Denver Michael sandwich update at the end of the show, and we'll, uh, you know, once once we're done talking with Scott, we'll just we'll, we'll explain the entire the entire contest again. But uh, I digress. So uh, welcome into the den of lore. Um, it, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, and an honor and a privilege to be t- talking with you. I know it is uh, an ungodly hour up there, so I do hope you have uh, your 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 cuppa uh, handy, and we'll we'll just jump right in. Um, uh, the Pyramid Hoax. Give us a quick overview, because I've read the book, I've listened to a bunch of the podcasts out there uh, where you've talked about it, and I know that there are some things that I want to be able to ask you about it, but g- give give the, the people who may not have heard about it um, uh, a, a quick overview. Okay, Chris. Well, the Great Pyramid Hoax basically delves into... I suppose what I would describe as a, a fairly obscure corner of orthodox history, of, of orthodox Egyptology, in fact. And it looks at um, these um, marks, these painted marks that were discovered in the Great Pyramid inside some hidden chambers of the Great Pyramid in 1837 by a chap called, a, a British uh, military guy called uh, Richard William Howard Weiss. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it long been suspected that the Great Pyramid was the, the tomb of Khufu, that it was built by the pharaoh Khufu, um, who lived around 4,500 years ago. That's about 2,500 BC. Now, we we get that information from historians um, such as uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian Herodotus, um, the um, historian Manetho, um, Josephus and Eusebius. All these writings have come down to us um, that the Great Pyramid was the tomb and was built 
by Khufu. But the problem is, Chris, that there's actually not an awful lot. In fact, there's there's probably no real hard physical evidence that connects this pyramid, the Great Pyramid, with this king, with um, the pharaoh Khufu. Mm-hmm. So these markings, these painted marks, which this um, British colonel found inside the Great Pyramid, inside the hidden chambers of the Great Pyramid in 1837, these were painted marks with the pharaoh's name, the pharaoh Khufu, painted onto the walls and the roof of these hidden chambers deep inside the Great Pyramid. And these marks essentially um, are the only hard physical pieces of evidence that we have that connects the Great Pyramid to this ancient king and also because it connects the Great Pyramid to this particular king, Khufu, it also dates the Great Pyramid to this particular king because Egyptologists, they were able through... Uh, a construction of what's known as the king lists. You know, they've got a, a whole line of kings that they've managed to construct all the way back throughout, um, you know, the entire history of ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. So they know when this guy Khufu lived. And so by knowing that, they're basically saying that, well, because we have found this cartouche deep inside this hidden chamber, you know, we know when this guy lived, it was 2500 BC, so that's the age of the pyramid. And that essentially um, is how, you know, they, they have come to connect the Great Pyramid, you know, with, with hard physical evidence. And it's, as I said, this, this piece of evidence is, the, you know, it's like the holy grail piece of evidence for mainstream Egyptology to assert that the Great Pyramid was built by this king four and a half thousand years ago. Um, you know, uh, as the American Egyptologist, uh, what's his name, um, Dr. Mark Lenner, you've probably heard of him. Um, he's, um, you know, been studying um, at Giza, you know, the Great Pyramid for, for about 25, 30 years, something like that. Now, he basically refers to these particular markings that were discovered by Howard Weiss as, um, you know, the clinching piece of evidence that allows Egyptology to basically maintain that this guy, this King Khufu, built the pyramid four and a half thousand years ago. So that's the importance of these marks. It's their only hard evidence that, you know, this, you know, King Khufu built the pyramid as per, you know, the the writings of Herodotus. My book, The Great Pyramid Hoax, basically analyzes these markings that this Howard Weiss discovered, allegedly, in 1837 and shows, well, pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, provides very, very strong evidence that Howard Weiss himself, in fact, faked those marks. And that's what um, the Great Pyramid hoax presents. It presents all the evidence that I have uncovered that essentially showed that these marks were faked in 1837 by Colonel Howard Weiss. Okay, and for for all those who who are listening to the show, again, if if you want to be able to to, uh, learn about the book or purchase the book, it is available on Kindle as well as in hard copy. Uh, We do have a link in the show notes, so you can check that out. 
Um, I've got my copy. It's uh, going to be required reading when I'm up uh, in at my in-laws this weekend. I, I can tell you that much. Um, I've already, cra- already cracked it and cracked most of it, and I'm going to be reading it again. It's fantastic, very well researched. Um, now, when it comes to Colonel Vice, I, I know that the the big thing is with him that it, it can go one of two ways. There was the idea that he had uh, he had a lot of uh, backing, as it were, but at the same time, he was kind of an egomaniac when it came to a lot of his his um, uh, wanting to research Egypt. Is that correct? Well. Um Colonel Vice, he certainly was. A, he was a very wealthy man, Chris, and in his own right, um, he was actually from the the sort of what we, we would call over here in Britain the the ruling class, the the elite of society of of his time in eighteen thirty seven. You know, his his ancestry was you know very much linked into the the British aristocracy. He was linked to like the the Duke of Cumberland and the Duke of Norfolk. You know, so and and uh, his name Howard um, goes all the way back to um, Catherine Howard, who was uh, one of the wives of Henry VIII of England. You know, so you know he's very much um, you know from the the establishment, um, the ruling elite of of the time, a very wealthy man. Um, but I have to say, as I, I mentioned briefly earlier, that he, he was part of the, the British military. Mm-hmm. He was a colonel in the British Army. And very much um, what we'd say here in Scotland, he was a, a, a pretty doer character, you know, a man of, um, you know, a disciplinarian, a strict disciplinarian with, with very, very little humour, um, what we would call a, a military martinet. So that's the kind of um, character that, that Howard Vice actually was, um, you know, from from what, you know, the information that's, that's come, come down to us. Um, but, you know, he, he also um, was a man who believed in the literal truth of the Bible. We we read in his um, published account, for example, that uh, you know he talks about the the flood, you know the biblical flood, you know, and he writes about it as though it was a you know a matter of of you know actual fact. You know, he genuinely believed that, as I you know a lot of people in the world even today do believe these things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong in that at all. I'm just pointing out what Colonel Vice believed um, when, when you know, he was alive. So he also probably um, believed in the, the, the biblical creation, uh, which in his, in, you know, this is a time before Darwin's origin of species you know, so um, we're living in a time in 1837, you know, when the church pretty much, um, you know, controlled much of everyday life for a lot of people. And Vice, um, you know, as I said, he was very much a religious man and probably believed in the biblical creation, which becomes, you know, in my opinion, it becomes part of, um, possibly part of his motive um for uh, perpetrating this fraud, which, uh, you know, we can touch on later. But, you know, in terms of um, his background, you know, he he also was an MP, a Member of Parliament for the the British Parliament um, in his 
you know, early part of his life, I think it was in 1807, he was elected to the British Parliament. But I have to say his, his methods for being elected to the British Parliament were pretty underhanded. Um, he um, basically um, bribed his way into the British Parliament by um, paying a lot of the, the voters in his constituency, um, you know, <laughs> fairly oh, no. substantial sums of money oh, to become here, an MP. We here in Ontario deal with that now. It's it's, it's called tax breaks around election time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in, in Britain at that time, it has to be said, you know, there, there were a lot of what we call, um, you know, there were a lot of corrupt um, sort of... Uh, constituencies um, at, at that time, what we'd call rotten boroughs. And there was, a lot of this this sort of thing did go on. But, you know, there were there were acts of parliament which, which made it illegal. You know, it, it was illegal. But nevertheless, Vice perpetrated it anyway um, in order to get himself into parliament. Mm-hmm. And there was an investigation at the time as well. Um, one of the, the, the chaps that Howard Vice defeated in one of his early election campaigns, a Mr Staples, he complained to parliament and it was investigated. Now, for Vice to get through that investigation, um, you know, without, um, you know, losing his seat, he would have basically had to have lied to the investigating committee that, um, you know, he had anything to do with, um, you know, corruption um, to win the seat. But we do know, because uh, we've got evidence uh, that's come down to us since then, we we know since, because uh, various diaries have been found which show exactly how much Howard Vice paid to particular individuals um, during his election campaign. You know, so this guy wasn't a guy, basically what I'm saying here, Chris, is Howard Vice wasn't a guy that we could say was whiter than white. You know, he had a few um, skeletons um, in his cupboard in, in, in terms of fraud. And even when he was at Giza much later in his life, other people at Giza were accusing him of unsavoury um, activities, uh, if I can put it like that. You know, so... Um, he was a guy, um, you know, that uh, basically seemed to attract scandal in whatever sort of um, walk of life that he, he he cared to enter into. What kind of other uh, accusations uh, were were made on the gentleman out of Egypt? Any any come to mind? Or well, um, there was um, an accusation. Um, uh, we don't actually know for certain um, the source of this um, particular accusation, but basically said that um, uh, Colonel Vice and essentially his boss, Colonel Patrick Campbell, um, were planning to make their fortunes um, by pretending to do scientific studies at um, the Giza you know, plateau within the Giza pyramids. Um, I think the implication being that they were essentially using these scientific studies to to sell artifacts and so forth and so on um, to make um, to make their fortune. Um, you know, so th- th- there's that accusation um, that Vice himself actually writes about in in his own book. You know, so um, there's also accusations that um, he basically stole, um, you know, someone else's discovery or I suppose a better word is usurped someone else's um, discoveries at Giza. Um, a, a chap, an Italian explorer called um, Caviglia, 
um, he basically, or he supposedly, or he claims to have discovered these hidden chambers and told Vice about them before Vice actually discovered them. But Vice basically, in his book, his version argues, you know, a different story. So there's a bit of, um, you know, a discrepancy there and a difference of opinion there between this guy, Caviglia, and Vice. You know, so as I said, it just seemed that wherever Colonel Vice went, he always attracted um, or always seemed to attract scandal of, 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 of some form or another. I mean, you know, um, so that's just, um, I suppose... Um, the nature of the beast. I guess if you could write history, you could make a lot of money selling artifacts, right? Yeah. Now, I thought that, um, that, um, I was about to say Caligula, <clears throat> excuse me. Caviglia. Caviglia. I thought yeah. that he had at least the, the common, I'm going to say common knowledge, the, the mainstream archaeology or mainstream history states that uh, he blasted on, on the south side of the stress relieving chambers and kind of gave up. And that was like apparently the opening that Vice had suspected that there was something else. Now, you're, essentially, what you're saying is that it's a possibility that since they were kind of there almost around the same time, that uh, Caviglia would have to- told him that I think something's there, and he just went around and just said, "Fuck it, we're just gonna gonna blast it open ourselves and 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 get the glory." Is is that about right? Well, it's it's kind of difficult to see exactly because the you know. Um, Vice says one thing and Caviglia says another. Um, Caviglia's um, story is essentially that um, you know, Caviglia was there at Giza long before Vice arrived and had been for a number of years. And um, he, at, at one time, he was actually um, living inside the Great Pyramid. Um, within these chambers that Vice eventually opened up, there was a chamber called Davison's Chamber. This was discovered by um, the British attache to um, Egypt, um, a chap called uh, Nathaniel Davidson, Mm -hmm. and it was discovered about 70 years before either Caviglia or Vice were at um, Giza. And in in this chamber, the... there's five of these chambers in total, and these chambers, they sit above the king's chamber, just in case your, listen, your listeners aren't aware of where these chambers are within the Great Pyramid. These are small chambers. You can barely stand up in them. They're only about three feet, three and a half feet high. So you can barely stand up in these chambers, but they're about 30 feet long by about 20 feet wide. And there's a series of five of them now, the very first one above the king's chamber, uh, that's Davison's chamber. That, as I said, was discovered 70 years ago. And apparently Caviglia, he lived in that chamber for, for you know, during other research work he was doing um, within the Great Pyramid. And his story is that um, he, he pushed a, um, you know, use, using a candle, he pushed a, I think it was a, a you know, stalk of grass or so, so, something fairly long through a crack in, in the roof above above his head in this chamber. And using a candle, he could actually see through this crack that there was another chamber above the one that he was in. But there was no, there was no means um, to actually gain access to this chamber. And apparently Caviglia told Vice about this. And what we know... As fact from that is that 
for one reason or another, Kavigla ended up off the site, um, essentially um, by vice. Uh, he seems to have basically um, been engineered off the site. From from what I can see, my interpretation of it, um, it, it looks to me as though Caviglia was engineered off the site um, by Colonel Vice, even although the the Furman um, that was that's the the Furman's basically the permit mm -hmm. to explore um, the pyramid was actually made out in Caviglia's name. Um, it's, a, it's a long court, you know um, story um, behind that, but the the end of the day, Caviglia ended up off the site at the behest of uh, Colonel Vice. You know, so you have to ask yourself, well, you know, you know, Colonel Vice wanted to um, open, be, wanted to be the one to open these chambers up, and um, basically claim the the, the glory um, of of doing that because he thought that within these chambers he would probably discover. The, the real tomb of the pharaoh Khufu, because remember, they had never found, you know, a body in the actual, or what is believed to be the sarcophagus inside the king's chamber. Mm -hmm. So some people assumed that the true sarcophagus was in some secret chamber elsewhere in the pyramid, and Vice probably thought that it was the one right above his head. And so he basically engineered um, Caviglia off the site, made sure that he got to open that chamber plus all the others above it that, that he discovered in the hope that and one of them was the, the actual burial of Khufu. Well, I'm guessing that was kind of a rude surprise where it's like, we're going to blow this one open. Oh, no, it's another three-foot-tall chamber. Hey, let, hey, there's another one above it. Let's blow that one open. Oh, no, sorry, that's it's just another small chamber. Now... <laughs> Well, it's, it's one. It, go, it goes to um, Chris. It goes to Vice's um, motive, I suppose here, um, because you know he was, you know, if you read his book, you mm -hmm. find that he was desperate, almost or very, very keen, to make an important discovery. You know, so this this probably goes to his motive or, or part of the motive for doing what he did ultimately is that he was very, very keen to make an important discovery. And a discovery would be something like, um, you know, finding the actual burial of Khufu. That would have been, you know, a, a major, major claim to fame. You, you know, he would he would. His name would go down in history um, if, if he had actually um, discovered that. But we also know that um, um, Vice knew um, from his his meanderings and his explorations around the Giza Plateau that um, a cartouche would allow, you know, ancient monuments, ancient ruins to be dated if a cartouche could be found. You know, upon those monuments, um, you know, he he was walking one day across the Giza Plateau, and there's these ancient ruins under his feet, and he comments in his book about those particular ruins and whether a cartouche might be found on them that would help to date them. Well, you know, if we extend that idea, he would have thought the very same thing for the pyramids themselves. So finding a cartouche as well would have been very important to uh, for for Colonel Vice because he knew that finding a cartouche would help to date not not any, you know, it would help to date any 
construction, including um, the Great Pyramid. You know, so that would have been another important discovery if if only he could find it. You know, so he was he was clearly motivated to make an important discovery because there were other explorers in Egypt at that time, at Giza and elsewhere in Egypt, that were discovering um, or making all sorts of um, important discoveries. And Vice, although he was finding some things that he was sending back to the British Museum, he wasn't making a major discovery. Uh, and, you know, there's Scott, a bit of pride and prestige involved Scott, there. Scott, we're getting, we're getting a little bit of distortion on your end. I'm not sure if that's um, bandwidth or not, but... Uh, uh, can can you just uh, uh, continue for a second? We'll see if it's uh, on our side or your side. Okay. Well, oh, there we go. Uh, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Okay. Um, so so basic basically, you know, I'm saying that Vice, um, you know, he's he's um, in these chambers. He's wanting to make an important discovery, either the the actual burial place of Khufu. That would be a major discovery or if he could find a cartouche that would help um, to date uh, the Great Pyramid and also to identify its builder would be have been to vice just as equally big a discovery. So, you know, these are these are the motivations for him. You know, he's trying to um, you know to you know for the prestige of Britain you know, there's a lot of pride and prestige involved here as well. Not to mention, actually, the <laughs> the small fact that he'd spent something in the order of ten thousand pounds—that's British pounds—of his own, you know, his own family fortune, you know, in excavating these pyramids. Now, it, that works out today, Chris, somewhere in the order of one point three million dollars in today's monetary terms you know so that's an awful lot of money to invest in a project and come away empty-handed you know so there again you know your vice is going to make sure he doesn't come away empty-handed having invested that amount of money in the project and that's you know that that would go to to kind of his um his character like if, if somebody is bribed their way into power and then bribed their way in or lied their way into keeping that power, there's a very good chance that they could have done the exact same thing to ensure that their massive investment <laughs> kept kept sound. Um, now, I, I know that the, it, the, the cartouche was on uh, the, the south end of the... I'm just trying to look through my notes here. South ceiling uh, towards the west end of the Campbell's Chamber. Uh, now the 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 Kufa cartouche it's the only inscription, um, and apparently this is supposed to be like a a gang sign essentially like a, a not and for for any of our American listeners know it's not a like a a, a crypt gang sign where, where it's it, it is a Mason's gang sign it, it's they're going to quarry the stone and then basically put their name on the on the rock to say hey this is uh, you know this this team's work so you know it's good. Um, kind of like a, a brand, as it were. Now, th the big thing about the cartouche is that it's the only inscription in the entire pyramid. Well, I have I, I have to just um, stop you there, uh, Chris. There's actually um, a number of Khufu cartouches within these chambers. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the what you have to understand is that Khufu had um, three. Three different, well, I actually five different names, but there's there are only three of them 
um, that were found in these hidden chambers. You know, so he had, um, you know, the name Khufu, mm -hmm. which is actually an abbreviation of his full name. His full name is Kunum Kuf or Kunum Khufu. That's his full name. And then, our, you know, um, his other name is um, the Horus. This is his, what's called his Horus name, the Horus Majedu. So, you know, there, there are actually three different names of Khufu inside these chambers. All in all, there are about probably about um, seven or eight cartouches. And there's one cartouche that says his abbreviated name, Khufu, one full cartouche that says Khufu. There are about six, I believe, that say Kunum Khufu. And there are a number of his Horus name, the Horus Majedu. There's maybe about three or four of those. You know, so it's not just one. Um, you know, a, a lot of people have this misconception that it's just the one cartouche that was found um, inside these chambers. There were actually several cartouches um, that were found. And the thing is, you know, the people always say, well, because the Kunum Khufu cartouche looks different it looks very similar but it's different it has another couple of signs within the actual cartouche a cartouche is basically like an oval shape um with a vertical a vertical bar on the end of it and inside this oval shape there are a number of hieroglyphic symbols and that's the cartouche that's the king's name these symbols inside this this oval shape so the khufu cartouche and the Kunum Khufu cartouche looks similar, but the Kunum Khufu cartouche has a couple of extra symbols. Now, people often say, well, why would, if, if Vice was um, forging this, why would they place two different cartouches within these chambers? And of, I explain why he would do that in the book, because it's often assumed that uh, back in 1837, these, king, these pyramids were built um, as a burial tomb for just one king. So why, if you know, Vice wouldn't have known that these were these names were for the same king? You know, he wouldn't have known that. Wherever he got his information, he wouldn't have known that they were for one king. So why would he place two different or similar looking but different cartouches within? The pyramid, and I, I explain that um, in the book why why he would do that, um, and it's it's, it's um, simply that the information at the time. Uh, there's a book um, by a chap called um, Wilkinson, John Gardner Wilkinson, and he basically says that a king could have what's called a nomen and a prenomen two different names, but he basically says in this book that um, they look similar, but they actually refer to the same king. Could, could that this, be an attempt to create a like a lineage? Like his son or his father or something like that? Or Well, what um, uh, they believed back then, or some, some believed back then, was that um, Kunum Kuf may have been the brother um, of um, Khufu, but Egyptologists, I don't think, even to this day, are absolutely certain um, about 
that particular Khufu. But the common consensus is that it's basically um, the Kunum Khuf is the full name of Khufu, whereas the Khufu cartouche is an abbreviated version of the full name. But what I think Vice, uh, Colonel Vice in reading Wilkinson's book, his book is called Materia Hieroglyphica. It's one of the earliest books written um, on hieroglyphics. And in this book, Wilkinson says that the king can have two cartouches that look very similar, but the, but they belong to the one king. And I think that is probably or possibly what compelled Vice when they found these markings to place the, both of them inside the, the pyramid, inside these chambers, and not just one of them. And how would he, <clears throat> how would he have uh, forged it? Like, if there is a certain type of ochre that would have been used for the cartouches, what would have, what what process would he would he have gone through to to make it make the fake, as it were? Well, I don't think he would have actually done the actual painting job himself. We know from some other evidence, Chris, um, that has come down. First of all, I'll say that the paint is um, called red ochre. It's a simple red ochre, iron oxide, um, you know, mixed with water. You know, it's a very, very simple, basic um, paint. You can still make it today. And in fact, in 1837, um, it was still being made. And Vice even talks about it um, in his published account. You know, so... We know that that particular paint was still available in 1837, as it is indeed today. Um, but we also know that uh, Vice actually got his two assistants um, to do the work, to do the painting of these um, glyphs inside these chambers. Um, there's This piece of evidence comes from Zechariah Sitchin, in fact, who in, uh, I think it was 1980, published a book called uh, uh, The Serpent, uh, oh gosh, the name, the name escapes me at the moment. And basically Sitchin was the first person, in fact, to, to claim that these marks were fraudulent. And he presented um, a later in a later book, um, Journeys to the Mythical Past, he basically presented this this um, or diary, a, a page from the diary of a chap called Walter Allen, who's an American chap. He lived he lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Walter Allen he was writing his um, family history in 1954, I believe it was. He was speaking to to some elderly relatives and basically taking notes in his ham radio um, note, notebook. And in this notebook, he writes, speaking to his family relatives, that his great-grandfather, a chap called Humphreys Brewer, worked with Colonel Vice in 1837 at the pyramids. And one of the things Walter Allen writes in his notes while interviewing or speaking with his family elders is that... Um, Humphrey, his great-grandfather, um, had an argument apparently with um, Raven and Hill. These were Vice's two closest assistants. He, he writes, um, 
faint marks were repainted. Some were new. You know, so there you have an actual eyewitness that Raven and Hill were painting over some faint marks in the pyramid, but also painting some new marks inside the pyramid. You know, so there you have an eyewitness account that's been handed down um, through Walter Allen's um, family. You know, so in terms of these painted uh, marks, the paint was available. The opportunity was available. What I mean by that is... uh, a very good place to place these marks had been discovered and Vice had the the two guys um, to actually um, do the deed. And if you said they they had painted over older marks, so it's like if they had seen something, and I I know there are those marks, I I forget exactly which, um, uh, I forget which temple off the top of my head, it's the one where everyone points to and says, oh, hey, there's a picture of a submarine and a picture of a helicopter. And it's actually yeah. like they they uh, combined or marked over glyphs yeah. to make a new glyph and then the That's plaster a, fell out. Pal- palimpsest. That, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, that, that like, it, it's very similar to that where they, they could have been looking and saying, oh, this kind of looks like what we needed to. Let's paint over it and change it around so that, that it... it you know, fits the narrative, as it were. Yeah, ex- exactly, Chris. Exactly. the The thing is, this this is one of the things that I've I have always argued. There are some marks in those chambers which are genuine. Um, I absolutely believe that, and there are some that are absolutely, definitely have been faked. Now, one of the, the other pieces of evidence which I go into in the book um, actually comes from. You know Howard Weiss's actual own hand. Um, Howard Weiss, his his book, his published volumes, there's three volumes that he published, and they're they're written in a diary form, a journal, and obviously as a, a journal, there would have to have been an original diary, um, you know, original hand handwritten notes, and I managed to track um, those um, handwritten notes uh, down to. Uh, I found them in a small library um, to the north of London. And one of the things, what I'll say right away is that um, Colonel Weiss's um, handwriting is absolutely appallingly difficult um, (laughs) to read. It's really, really difficult to read. You know, so when I, I mean, there's something like um, 300 double-sided pages of this journal. And, you know, Honestly, his writing is appallingly bad. But the thing is, when I was initially looking through, um, you know, these thin, fragile pages, you know, even though I could barely read a single word of Vice's handwriting, you know, (laughs) ironically, what I could read on those pages was the more ancient writing that is the you know the hieroglyphics that mm-hmm. Vice had so meticulously drawn on those pages. I could read those on those pages, and when I saw what I saw, the hieroglyphics that I saw on those handwritten pages that Vice had written, when I read those hieroglyphics on those pages, I knew, you know, there, there's something really wrong here. This isn't right. 
you know, and obviously, I, you know, I, I go into that, explain that in the book in more detail. But one of the things in time when I became more accustomed um, with, um, you know, the writing um, in this journal and with the help of um, various other people and basically breaking the code of his handwriting. One of the phrases that we discovered um, was in those notes when he first enters the first chamber. This is the chamber above Davison's chamber, which I said earlier had been open for 70 years. Mm -hmm. The chamber above this, Vice called Wellington's chamber. And inside that chamber, well, Vice blasted that open. That was the first chamber he opened. Now, in, in his diary, um, I think I think that was opened uh, something like the 27th of March, 1837, something like that. Now, when he opened that chamber, on the east wall, that's where, the, you know, the, the broke through the chamber on the east wall, Vice writes in his private notes, not his published account, in his private notes, Vice tells us that he found marks on the wall, on the east wall, right? He found marks there. Um, that looked, that he says they looked like quarry marks of, of red pa red painted quarry marks, but the signs looked nothing like hieroglyphics. Yeah, you know that. Basically, what he's saying is, um, you know, the, the quarry marks um, basically used hieroglyphic signs. For Vice, in his published book, hieroglyphics and quarry marks were the, essentially the same things. Hieroglyphics were essentially graffiti using signs from the hieroglyphic alphabet, just like we have graffiti today using signs from our English alphabet, letters from our English alphabet. So to Vice, you know, saying quarry marks and hieroglyphics was entirely interchangeable. So when he says he saw marks on the wall there, they looked like red painted quarry marks, but nothing like hieroglyphics. The signs in these marks were nothing like hieroglyphics. And when you look at these signs, they don't look anything like hieroglyphics. They're weird geometric shapes. And, you know, so those, I believe, are absolutely genuine marks that he found in the east wall of Wellington's chamber. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when you then, so Vice, Vice says that, he says, you know, there are marks. They look like quarry marks, but the signs in them look nothing like Egyptian hieroglyphic signs, nothing like quarry mark signs. That's what he's effectively saying. But then in his published book, what he's saying, what he writes in his published account of the very same night is that, on, you know, on this night, we found the quarry marks. So there you, right away, in, in his private handwritten account with his private thoughts, three year, remember his book is published about three years later, he says, you know, he found nothing. And yet three years later, he tells us he found the quarry marks. But nowhere, you know, in his private notes does he say that he found anything that looked like genuine quarry marks or typical quarry marks. He just doesn't mention. Now, when you look at what Vice actually found or claims he found in his published account, if you go to the British Museum, because Vice asked his assistant, Mr. Hill, to apparently copy the marks in these chambers to do a one-to-one -one facsimile copy 
of all the marks um, inside these 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 chambers. And when you look, go to the British Museum and look at these facsimile drawings, as I did uh, a few years back, what you find um, is that one of the there is only one drawing from this chamber, Wellington's chamber, and it is a cartouche. It's one of the, the, the gang names. The gang names would typically use the, the, the king's name as part of their own name, okay? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so the, the, this is why the, the, the cartouche is painted onto this block. It's supposedly um, one of the, 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 the crew names or the gang names that worked in the quarries. But there you have this, this, this cartouche, and it was found on the west wall. Um, and Vice makes absolutely no mention of this discovery anywhere in his published account. He doesn't say that in his private account. He says that he, he found he found nothing, you know, nothing like looked like hieroglyphics in this chamber, and yet in his published account he says we found the quarry marks. Well, you know, when did you find them? What did you find? You know, there's a big, big question mark there because. Vice, as I explained earlier in the show, one of the things he would have been delighted in finding, absolutely ecstatic in finding, would have been a cartouche. But he makes absolutely no mention of it in his private notes. Why not? That would have been a huge discovery for Vice had he found it in the chamber on that night. And his private notes make no mention of it. And all he says in his published account, as I said, we found the quarry marks without identifying the cartouche whatsoever, which would have been a major discovery. And he makes no mention. And there's just no... <laughs> I just cannot make sense of that. The only reason I can make sense of that is that that cartouche was not in the chamber that night, and that's why there's no mention of it in Vice's private journal, and why, in his published account, He's been very vague. He's been deliberately vague about what was discovered there. It's almost like he's giving himself plausible deniability there by well, being deliberately vague about what was found. And that's kind of the... Th it, I, I'm speaking from experience here. If something really cool happens to me, and now that with the age of Facebook and Twitter, you know, anything happens, you're going to write it down if it's going to be something that's going to be published. Exactly. You want, especially for somebody who is, uh, you know, and we, we as a culture are a lot more egotistical, a lot more narcissistic, and you know, even if it's like a shade or two more than it would have been back then, but still. You know, I know people who, their dog does something cool, that's me. Um, they'll post it up on Instagram, and yeah, that's I do that all the time. And the same thing, if, if he's going to put in his own private notes or if he found something cool he's going to try and express his own thoughts down and say well you know we've done something interesting like uh, like oh my goodness i can't believe how hard this was to be able to find you know he would have been ecstatic at the fact that all of this money and all of this this effort and all of this time would have been worth it yeah if exactly Chris. if he's putting it down in his private notes now it, this this is coming from a man who if, if he knows his notes are going to be looked at if, if they're private you know, there there is always a possibility that you know he he 
what's the best way to put if it? If you have a million dollars in the pot, you're paying fucking attention. You're paying attention, yes. <laughs> you're you're going to keep meticulous notes. You're, you're, you're going to note what has happened, when it's happened. You'll note how many shits you took during the day, if necessary, <laughs> and how much those shits cost. You know, how, <laughs> how many rolls of paper you used, <clears throat> all of that. Right, right. There's no notice of it. Now, the big thing is the, the, the like... If the gang marks were different than than what the cartouche actually would have been, and if the cartouche would have been um, a part of a gang mark, the, the major thing is why would people can assume that the cartouche is the pointing point toward the 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 the, the X marks the spot to to the answer to the question of who made it, knowing that gang marks are the cartouche is only part of it, it you know, or the name of the king would have been part of it, as in like. This is, uh, you know, Khufu's gang. Yeah, uh, the quarry mark is not a king's mark. Well, no, it's not a king's mark. It, it the, but the king's name would, would have been part of it, as Scott had mentioned. So, but you're you're talking about, but that would have looked different. That would have been different. It's a hop, skip, and a jump in logic Ex- exactly. to say that the quarryman's mark would have been the king's mark. Precisely. So the king's not, you know, wielding a chisel, presumably. Now, I, I know that in a lot of your, uh, like in some of the other the. Um, um, other interviews that you've got that you've given the idea of you know there's been the why there's been the how there's been the the talk about the the um the diaries and we're going to go into that the the diaries in a second because it's always interesting to hear how uh, how you deciphered his handwriting <laughs> but what happened afterwards what happened after the um you know like a- after the quote unquote discovery was was made and I, i'm using quotation marks here in the studio if you're watching on YouTube, uh, because obviously it could have been a hoax. So what happened afterwards? What happened after what event? Sorry, sorry, Chris, I didn't quite hear earlier oh. what you said there. Uh, I, well, with, with regards to him finding the cartouche, what was the uh, chain of events after the fact? With, like he, he wrote it down, they found it. What was the chain of events after the they made the discovery and announced it? Well, basically what happened is, um, you know, he ordered, mis- when they, they found these quarry marks in the first chamber, they obviously um, didn't find the, you know, um, the, the mummy of Khufu, which was what they were hoping to find. They obviously realised there was another chamber above, so they kept going, um, basically digging, and then they kept, you know, apparently finding more and more, of these quarry marks and the strange thing is the strange thing is chris is that what you find is at the very bottom chamber davison's chamber which vice didn't open it had already been opened there's zero marks no marks at all and this is the point sitchin first made there was absolutely no marks found in that open chamber whatsoever the only ones that were found were the ones discovered in the chambers opened by Vice that he blasted open. And what you see, you, you kind of see a pattern. You know, it starts off with um, Vice genuinely discovering some marks on the east wall that didn't look anything like hieroglyphics. And then suddenly a cartouche appears from that wall from nowhere. There's no mention of it anywhere. And then the next level up, the next chamber that the blaster we enter, this is Nelson's chamber, you find there are a couple more, a few more hieroglyphics on just the west wall this time, okay? And then what you find, the chamber above that, this is Lady Arbuthnot's chamber, 
It's covered in them. They're all over the place, virtually in every wall. And then the chamber above that, you find that's the final chamber, that's Campbell's chamber, that has you know a sloping roof as opposed to a flat level roof. Um, you know, and there's there's you know marks all over that chamber as well, and that's where the famous Khufu cartouche that everybody knows about was discovered. You know, so you you find that this you know it's like zero marks, then one mark, then two marks, then load several marks, then loads of marks. It's like almost as though Vice and his 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 crew were growing in confidence. You know, and and covering these these chambers with with various marks, but there's there's another um, possibility to that as well, is that the walls in these chambers, um, when they were placing the wall blocks, mm-hmm. most of these marks are on the walls of these chambers, Chris, and when they were, you know, putting these blocks in place, what they would do. You know they would f- they would move one block over you know on top of another block to slide that block into place and to reduce uh, friction. They would use a, a lime slurry, basically as a, a lubricant, mm-hmm. to slide one block over the other as it were to slide it into place. And what that would cause is, you know, the compression of one block on top of another would squeeze the slurry out down the sides of the blocks yeah mm-hmm. and um this would run down the face of these wall blocks and what you find and it's quite remarkable um is that there's no record of any of these quarry marks having been covered by any of this slurry at all you know so you think about this the these quarry marks are placed onto the blocks at the quarry. You know, so the the marks are on the blocks first, and then the marks, then the blocks are shipped to the pyramid site. You know, are manoeuvred into place. There's all this slurry running down the face of the these blocks, but somehow none of these marks end up with any of the slurry on top of them. Now, what you also find is that the lower chambers. Um, from from what I've been able to research, the lower chambers have more slurry running down their walls than the upper chambers. And it's the lower chambers that we find the fewest marks. And it's the upper chambers where there's the least slurry running down the walls that we find the most marks. You know, so that may <laughs> explain why there's fewer marks in the lower chambers than, than there are in the upper chambers. You know, so when all these marks were done, Vice basically got his guys to, or Mr. Hill, to make copies of them. Some of them are actually um, um, attested to. They, they got witnesses in once they'd done all these these drawings to basically say, yep, that looks like that. Yep, that's good. That looks like that. And they would all sign these, um, these uh, drawings you know, basically attesting that there were a true likeness to, mm-hmm. to from the facsimile to what was on the wall blocks. So they had all these about three or four witnesses, you know, witnessing these these drawings. This was long after, you know, that you know, obviously they had been discovered. Um, maybe about a month or so after, maybe maybe a bit longer after they'd been discovered. Um, you know, so the other curious thing 
well, what was to happen with these these uh, facsimiles is they would be sent to the British Museum in London. Um, there were some experts there that would then take them and analyse them and try and decide what they were. But to do that, to, de- to try and analyse these um, particular facsimile drawings that Mr Hill made, and also for the witnesses to you know, be able to compare light with light, to be able to compare the facsimile with the actual markings on the wall. They would obviously, what you have to understand is that the vast majority of these markings on these walls are actually upside down. Yeah, they're upside down. They're not the right way up. You know, if you're standing looking at, you know, these markings in the chamber, imagine it's the, the image of a bird. Well, that bird is upside down looking on, on the wall block as you're standing looking at it, uh, as are most of the other signs in these chambers. And the conventional reason for that is, um, the orthodox reason for that is that, well, you know, the blocks were, you know, done at the, you know, cut at the quarries. They were put on, the names were put on the blocks the correct way up, but when they arrived at the pyramid, they weren't, you know, the the guys that were placing them, you know, into the actual, um, their, their final resting place and, these chambers, they weren't concerned about, you know, where these gang names would end up. They're just interested in getting the block into the wall in the most efficient manner possible. They're not concerned about a name being upside down or or whatever. They just want to get the block in place as quickly and efficiently as possible. So this is why Egypt always says these marks are upside down or sideways or or whatever. Just like lumber markings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so so basically, at that point, you're saying that when, when they're quarrying the the rocks, it, it doesn't like they could put the marks on any way they need to. The block could be upside down, uh, the wrong. Well, way no, around. what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is they would put the, their, their name, their gang name, mm-hmm. at the quarry. They would write their name on the block the right way up, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only when it arrives at the, the the pyramid site at the chamber, you know, the guys that are fitting it into place, they don't care about some. Crew gang's name. They just want to get the block in place as efficiently as possible. They don't care if the gang name, you know, from that gang at the quarry ends up upside down or sideways or whatever. They they're not interested in that, you know. So that's how the names, according to the the, the mainstream theory, ended up upside down within these um, chambers. But from a, a, a forger's point of view, it makes perfect sense to put the marks on these walls upside down. Because if you're trying to prove or to make the point that these marks are genuine, okay, you have to make it look as if these marks were done at the quarries. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Because if the marks look as though they've been done at the quarries, then they're obviously genuine. How do you make the marks appear as though they were painted at the quarries? You do it whichever way. You paint them upside down. Ah, okay. Yeah. So essentially, um, that is is why most of these these marks are painted, you know, with these weird um, orientations. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I go into this in some detail um, in the book. Mr. Hill, this is um, you know Vice's um, you know um, quarry gang name, you know quarry mark artist. He basically recorded all these markings on these facsimile sheets. He made 28 drawings altogether, 
and I've analyzed, I've, I've viewed them all, um, you know, photographs of them all, I've an, analyzed them in, in some considerable depth. And what I found is I was able to cross-check 24 of the 28, because what I mean by that is a chap, Another chap that worked with Vice, um, John Perring, mm -hmm. he made a plan survey, which is in Vice's um, published book. He made a plan survey of all these walls, showing <clears throat> the orientations of the marks on the walls. And you can actually see in Perring's drawings, he's drawn these marks upside down, sideways, a few of them the correct way up. Um, you know, if you're standing looking at them in the chamber. You know, so he's done a plan drawing of all these chambers, all the marks. So I was able to cross-check um, Hill's similar drawings with Vice's plan survey drawing. And <clears throat> because what I wanted to do was check um, which way around Mr Hill's similar drawings should be. Because, you know, it's a sheet of um, paper lying on a table, which way around should it be? You know, because you know, um, if, if you're not familiar with the, the markings in the chamber, which the guys in London who were sent these facsimiles at the British Museum, they wouldn't have known which way round these these um, facsimile sheets should be. You know, um, yeah. because as I said, some of them are upside down, sideways or whatever. They, they, you know, so they... But what Mr Hill did was he signed each of the facsimile sheets with his signature the right way up, giving the correct chamber orientation. What I mean by that is, let's say that it's a picture of a bird and it's upside down, okay? So Mr Hill would turn that page to upside down with the chick upside down and he would sign his name at the bottom of that sheet the correct way up with the bird upside down. Every sheet, would be he would basically use his signature to, as a this way up sign. Do, do, do you follow what I mean? He would I, use his I signature. Right. Yes. For, for, for anybody who uh, has ever seen uh, A Christmas Story, if they write fragile, it just means it's Italian. It's a, you've ever seen, I, I'm sorry, it, it's a Christmas, Christmas movie joke. Very bad pun. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the idea of right side up, I always think of that. That um, yeah, uh, you've seen it. Okay, good. Thank God. <laughs> okay, so so yeah, uh, no, I, I know where you're coming from. Right. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So on every single one of um, Hill's um, facsimile drawings, he had this his signature. He used his signature as a this way up sign. I was able to check um, twenty four out of the twenty eight, and. All of them corresponded. All of them were, you know, I managed to get the, the, the correct orientation mm -hmm. of those marks as they were written on the wall just by reading um, Mr. Hill's signature, except two of them. And the two were the Khufu cartouche and on one page and the other signs which make up the rest of that gang name of the Khufu cartouche. They were the, the, the signature was in the wrong place. It was oh, almost as a... You know, they'd goofed up there. They'd goofed up and placing the signature on uh, in the wrong place on those two particular facsimile sheets. And if you look at you know probability theory, you know it's it's pretty certain that Hill did use this particular technique um, to orient and to lock in the the you know the the direction of these particular um, quarry marks. 
in his in his drawings. You know, so there again, you have, it's just another piece of evidence that points to the fact that that Khufu cartouche in the topmost chamber is fraudulent, as well as a whole load of, of other um, <laughs> evidence um, that, that I present in the book. Now, what would have been the outcome for him? Bes- like, why would he, besides the fact that he is just, <laughs> has been, uh, you know, allegedly is a lying bastard, as it were, can, or a crooked bastard when it comes to uh, his political career, why the hell would he have forged all of this besides the fact, like, besides the investment? Like, what was the end goal? Right, okay. Well, obviously the investment's a big consideration. Personal notoriety, you know, um, fame is another possibility. Um, you know, prestige, you know, national pride, possibly another possibility. Um, but the thing I think is probably maybe the most likely, possibly, it's hard to know what the his actual motivations would have been in this, Chris. But the thing I think possibly is because Vice was a particularly um, religious man, he wanted to make... There's a story that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, that um, Champollion, um, when, you know, the, the chap who cracked the hieroglyphics um, about 15 years before Vice, um, he was basically funded on a trip um, to Egypt, and you know it was part of the trip. His trip was partially funded by the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Now, on the proviso, they 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 provided you know funds for his trip on the proviso that he did not divulge any information or discoveries which would undermine the authority of the church or the teachings of the church. Okay? I think possibly there was a similar thing going on with Vice. Vice knew the importance of a cartouche. He knew a cartouche allowed things to be dated, to be locked, to be a date to be locked in. And Vice, you know, he would not have wanted the pyramids to be considered to be, you know, older than the creation. Yeah. So he was basically, by placing um, these cartouches within these chambers, he's basically saying, you know, this is this cartouche, we know when this guy lived, you know, it's well within the creation. You know, so he's he's effectively um, claiming the pyramid, um, you know, within um, God's provenance, if you like, um, you know, purely, I think, as a result of, of his religious beliefs. No one now can say that the pyramid is older than the creation. He wanted to make sure that that could never, um, ever occur. Well, <laughs> it, I know that you are familiar with, with Robert Vall's work or uh, John Anthony West's work or <laughs> with... Uh, uh, Dr. Robert Schock's work, the idea of the pyramid being older than it actually is. Uh, and uh, again, I know that Robert Vival is um, a proponent of the standard dating, or at least around that, I you know, like around that standard dating of the pyramids. Um, are, are, you, are you familiar with, with David Roll's work? 
Um, I've, I've, I've read some of David's work uh, a number of years ago, um, and his basically, you know, his new chronology um, of um, the, the Egyptian dynasties and. You know, and relating that, I think, back to to biblical chronology as well. Um, but I'm not greatly um, familiar with it. Okay, well, we we've had like I've had Baval on the show. I've had Roll on the show, and like one of the 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 key themes that we are trying to do is connect the dots, as it were, to try and find the common theme, the common truth. We're we're trying to get to the bottom of 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 history, and you know, everything just kind of keeps leading back to Egypt. Um, the interesting thing that Roll had said, and uh, like Baval is a proponent of the or- Orion correlation, and that's been proven through some Italian universities, or at least a, like they're they're you know saying that it's it's true. Um, whether the pyramid is built in 2500 BC or not, the mounds themselves were in place, and this is something that Roll has said uh, when we had him on the show in like what was that February March. You. you mm. You you were on honeymoon, Alex. I think at yep. the time, um, and he had said that no, the mountains were there and they were set out, you know, pre-dynastically. So, I can understand the idea of trying to uh, speak against to, to to speak against what the evidence could potentially say to try and create the narrative or continue the narrative based on whether it's the, you know, the church or uh, certain understandings that, okay, the, you know, the world is only 6,000 years old. When, you know, 6,000 years ago or, or more, you know, whether it's 12,000, 24,000, depending on who you actually believe, that these, uh, whether it's the pyramids themselves or the uh, structures that they were built on, the areas that they were built on, were there thousands of years before the, the pyramids were actually there. So the idea that they were trying to kind of fake the information, is this something that could have been coming from a much higher source? Like, and again, I'm not much for conspiracy, but ancient conspiracy, sure, why not? Um, Did somebody tell him to do this, or is there any indication that he had this agenda? Yeah. It's uh, certainly an interesting question, Chris. It's something... Um, which has in fact crossed my own mind. Um, maybe if I you know get the time, I will dig deeper into that particular aspect. But I, I see what you're driving at and know what you're driving at. There may well have been you know other influences there um, to uh, uh, for vice and maybe that is why funding wasn't so much an issue. Um, you know, you know, it's it's a difficult one to answer. We do, we just don't know, um, but it certainly um, would be an intriguing area of research. Certainly, given um, what we know of um, Champollion's experience and third party agendas. <laughs> well, that that's kind of the idea. Uh, like now, the, the, this is kind of a, like for for me, it's uncovering the possibility of a. Uh, I'm going to say whether it's a personal agenda or the possibility of a secondary agenda. And again, I, I'm a conspiracy buff like most other people are, and it's always a matter of speculation. You're always going to speculate. And <laughs> is this a possibility? Who knows? You know, there's yeah. no writing. There's no there's no um, absolute proof. But the fact that he faked it is is an indication that he was he was, he had an agenda of some kind. Now, yeah, he may he may he may well have gone to Egypt with this agenda 
all the time. He may well have gone to Egypt with um, the right information, um, but you know, the, I haven't uncovered any evidence of that um, so far. So I, you know, I can't um, say one way really or the other. Um, but it certainly um, would be, make an interesting line of inquiry. Well, if he gave you uh, another idea for a book, please <laughs> do, do remember us in the foreword. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, the next book, I'm, I'm kind of actually already starting to work on it. I'm, since uh, since the last book, um, and I, I finished that, oh gosh, um, sometime in the middle of, of, of last year. And, um, you know, the book was locked down then. And since it's been locked down, you know, there's this idea, Chris, that... When a theory is right, mm -hmm. you, t you tend to find more and more evidence to support the theory. Yep. But if a theory is wrong, you tend not to find much evidence to support it. In fact, you tend to find evidence that contradicts it. Well, since the book was locked down last June, last year, I've been finding more and more evidence um, to support um, the the fraud theory, and so um, I may well, by the you know next year or so, have uncovered enough to do a sequel to the Great Pyramid hoax. So that's 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 one of my hopes anyway. Okay, well. You know, if if you're finding more research, I, I'm not sure how much you're willing to divulge on this show. I, I know that um, uh, we tend to go fairly deep on subjects here, and sometimes it, and Laird would be a, a good proponent of that, where we basically hammered him with questions for four hours to the point where he said, this is my next two books, guys. I can't really talk about this at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, snap. <laughs> well, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see where the, the, the story takes us. Uh, Alex, you're looking at me like you got something. No, no, no you're, you're fine. Okay. I'm now, just looking back over the notes here, all the names to research. Now, it, uh, how, how much, like, your, your main area of research is the, specifically towards, uh, towards uh, Richard Howard Vices, and he's got, like, four names at this point. But I'm, I'm going to say, like, you know, uh, I'm just going to say Vice for now. Uh, is his forgery of, or potential forgery of this, uh, you know, of the cartouche. Now, how, have you looked into... Uh, the pyramid construction theories at all, or ha has your research led you into learning how the pyramid was constructed? Um, well, I go into that um, in my previous book, actually, um, Chris, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, The Lost Knowledge of the Sixteen Pyramids. Um, I go into, well, it's just purely my own um, you know, theory um, as to how um, I think they may have been built. As I say, it's purely just a, um, a theory. Um, and, you know, my theory, I mean, it's ov obviously it's entirely speculative, although what I would say is there is some physical evidence which does seem to support it. Um, I should say here also that, you know, I, I suspect a variety um, of techniques were probably used um, to build um, the pyramids, but um, what what I will say is that giant ramps. You know, I've got real difficulty. You know, with with that particular ideas, constructing those giant ramps would have been as big a project. You know, as as building the pyramids themselves. And I think in any case, even today, mainstream Egyptology. You know, um, they they no longer really accept 
you know, massive, these massive straight on ramps as, as a viable proposition. Um, you know, there is, you know, um, I think there's one clue that hints how the pyramids were built, okay? And that comes to us, that comes to us from the, an ancient Egyptian legend that tells us that the pyramid, uh, the pyramids were built with flying stones, okay? The stones of the pyramid were flown into place, okay? Now, that may seem a bit far-fetched, you know, and there, there has been, you know, all, all manner of theories, some mundane, some more sort of exotic to try and explain, you know, what this actually meant. You know, well, having explored the Giza Plateau myself, um, I came across a number of curious sort of, the, these pits, these vertical pits dug deep down into the limestone bedrock. Now, these pits, they were about 15 to 20 feet deep. And, you know, mostly they were placed parallel to each other and had a small connecting channel at the bottom of the pit, you know, kind of connecting them like um, a, a sort of a U-shape, mm -hmm. okay? Now, for some time, you know, I wondered what the purpose um, of these these parallel shafts or pits could have been. And then one day I saw, I was watching a TV documentary um, here in Glasgow, and it was talking, it was explaining about, um, I don't know if you've ever heard, um, Chris, um, heard of the Dakota fire pit. You ever heard of that? I've I've heard of it. I'm just... Um, okay. Not a fan, well, not a fan. I, I can't recall. Okay. Well, basically, the, the Dakota fire pit, is, it's basically two pits, small pits dug side by side into the ground, into the earth, with a small connecting tunnel at the bottom. And one of the pits, a fire, is lit. And because of the horizontal connecting tunnel, cold air is pulled in from the other parallel pit or, or shaft, creating a convection current. Yeah? Okay. So these type of fires, um, you know, they burn really, really efficiently, re reducing the amount of s smoke generated. And they also burn much hotter as the pit protects them um, from the prevail prevailing weather conditions outside the, the pit. But I, I wonder, you know, why would the ancient Egyptians need such massive Dakota fire pits? Because, you know, I was seeing these all over the, the Giza Plateau. Why why would they need a, a really efficient and very hot fire burning deep down in a limestone pit? And then an idea came to me. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. So you were saying, let's know. Talk about out there ideas, yeah. You know, let, mm -hmm. well, let's 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 go for it. Okay, <laughs> straight to the skyhook argument. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was doing I, I, one day. I was doing some research into the Temple of Hathor at Dendera. You know, this is the you've probably seen this. It's the the temple we find the famous Dendera light bulb. Yeah, you know mm -hmm. the one I mean. Yep. Um, well, the thing about this particular scene in that, that temple is that the main deities depicted in the scene are the goddess of the air and the god of the sky. Oh, okay? okay. Now, the text alongside this particular scene, they talk also of the sky carriers. I thought, what could that mean? So when I looked at the scene more closely, it seemed to me that this you know, the so-called light bulb, you know, 
um, which which Egyptologists believe symbolises the sky god Horus being born from a lotus flower. Okay, that's the conventional interpretation of that particular scene. You know what I'm thinking. What we're seeing was actually, you know, it's a horizontal um, balloon being filled with hot air. Yeah. Well, th- this uh, completely contradicts the water theory that uh, we had on a couple totally. weeks ago. Yeah, so anyway, the snake, the snake within the balloon and this light bulb, this, uh, imagine it as a balloon and not a light bulb, the snake within the balloon symbolizes the goddess of air, okay? And what you see also in other parts of um, this temple at Dendera is that these same balloon-type images are now depicted upright, you know, in the Dendera, the, the large balloon is horizontal, but in other parts of this temple, there's other of these um, balloon-type shapes, but they're depicted upright, and they carry below them what looks like a basket of stones, okay? So I thought, could a simple hot-air balloon have been used to raise the pyramid stones, and I did the calculations and, you know, basic calculations show that a spherical balloon of 100 feet diameter would have sufficient lift to raise two average pyramid blocks, obviously plus the weight of the balloon material itself. You know, um, and keep in mind here, guys, keep in mind, okay, I know we're, we're, we're flying out there, but, but keep in mind well, that... That's okay. When, <laughs> when the Mingoffey brothers created their first hot air balloon in the 18th century, it was made from paper and linen. And these just happened to be materials the ancient Egyptians invented. So, hey, why not? Built by Zeppelin. You know, I, I've heard the water theory. I've heard the internal ramp theory. I've heard the external ramp theory. They, I've heard the stone and chisel theory. This is actually new. <laughs> to me, no, to me nobody's personally. putting pulleys on the bottom of UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I always try and start, Chris, I always try and start from the premise of, you know, what are we told about how they were built? And what we were told from this ancient legend is that the, fl- the, the stones were flown into place. So I'm thinking, well, how can we do that, you know, without getting into some exotic vibrational um, type scenario, some exotic signs? How can we use basic signs to make stones fly into place? And then I saw that that balloon type shape, you know, it's, it's lying horizontal and then it, it looks like it's being inflated. There's a long sort of hose type thing going into it. And the snake inside it is the god of air. Yeah, and then you see them vertical with what looks like stones being carried beneath them. You know, so I thought, well, you know, who knows? Perhaps there's maybe, um, no, it's very easy to see that hot air makes things rise. You just have to, you know, see ashes in a fire. You know, what causes these ashes? You just have to ask that question. What causes these, these ashes to rise up? within the flames of the fire. What causes that? And as soon as you ask that question, you, you can start experimenting, and it's easily enough discovered. Doesn't the word pyramid mean fire within? But, well, that's one of the, the, the I think, the, the Greek um, interpretations. interpretations of it, Alex, yeah. You know, I have to say is that for, for the people in the YouTube chat who are like going, shit, we're going to get to aliens now. Like, no, no, guys, <laughs> this is hot air balloons. Yes, the same kind of balloons I, I will make 
this weekend into like a dog or a pony. Yeah, listen. They listen, were happy guys. birthday Khufu balloons, actually. That were <laughs> guys, think about it. Think about it. It would make a great history or history channel documentary or discovery channel documentary. You know, just think out there at the Giza Plateau, you know, you've got these big blocks. You're making this this massive balloon out of primitive materials and you're trying to get this thing to lift just, you know, with a big fire and a pit, you know, 15 feet deep and you're trying to get, you know, th- th- think about it. It would be great well, fun. Think think about it this way. We actually have viewers who have their wives on, like, stuck next to them right now because of your accent. You can make any, <laughs> any, make any claim you geographic. Like. Where are the ancient dirigible balloons now? <laughs> Listen, I've done, a, I've, I've done a, um, a YouTube video of it. Um, I think it's the, the flying balloons of ancient Egypt, something like that. You can go onto YouTube and put my name in and hot air balloon or something like that. I can't remember the, the title of the video, but I did, I did it a couple of years back. So your your listeners can go on and, and Google it. And it's got a, a small video presentation of of how the whole thing would work hey, you wouldn't be the first author we had on that would be full of hot air <laughs> oh, okay. oh geez <laughs> Al- alex and listen we're well past april fool's day i i, I know it's this, a good theory i like it well this is the first pun that actually makes sense that alex has given out in quite some time so i'm actually quite impressed <laughs> I'm, I'm, well slept today watch out oh there we go um so you that's know. my theory on, on on how they may have been built. I'm not insisting it's right, absolutely not. But totally hey, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a possibility to chuck into the pot. Why not? Well, it it has like oh, this is my Th- thing. Thank you for it. I'm well, no, thank you very much. This uh, we we had uh, Stephen Myers on on the show back at uh, middle of March, I think it was. Yeah, mi- middle of March, and uh, his proponent, he's a proponent of the. Um, the pump, like the, the, the pump water, theory, water lock theory, like the water lock. Theory. Yeah, so yeah, I, 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 I saw that theory. Yeah. Now the the big thing for me is that if if there were water locks, why would they have needed slurry to move the blocks into place? Now I, I'm I'm kind of uh, you know I'm in not not like in my old age and becoming kind of a, a skeptic as it were like not really a skeptic i i just look at all the information to me what is most rational based on what i've i've seen uh the air balloon theory it's a possibility because like fuck who else hasn't you know tied something to an air balloon and tossed it up into the sky i've done it myself um but the inner ramp theory is something that i i've been kind of a proponent of uh, because it's it's the most rational to me like the hardcore yeah. Um, uh, technological, from what they actually had available, and easiest to actually do. But yeah, it's using it's using the pyramid as, itself yeah. as as the ramp. Yeah, you know, as as it's being built. You know, that they uh, really find evidence for that when they do the like the penetrating radar and the pyramid structure. You'd find the pyramid. You'd find the ramp kind of, still inside. Yeah, like, kind of spiral. There's a kind of spiral. Why couldn't they have done both? How, how there, do you get the, there should be how do you blatant get the evidence for that that should be visible. Oh, the capstone's easy with a balloon. Oh, exactly. You just like <laughs> you, you, you have four people on like with long strings. You maneuver it in a place, and you're good to go. Well, um, I, I, mm. I I talk about a guy rope because you don't want your your stone just flying off into the deep blue yonder and landing in some poor Egyptian's hut somewhere you know so that's why they um, had to trademark the blocks in case they flew <laughs> off into another country and this this is how the pyramids in uh, in kush started 
<laughs> now, the the new book that's coming out, like let, let's talk, I, I know we've got about um, it's about ten ten oh uh, three p.m. here. What time is it there, Scott? Oh goodness, it's uh, just just after three a.m. in the oh. three a.m. in the morning. Well, we have about half an hour left on this show, so let's talk about the new book just a little bit to try and give people a teaser. A little bit of a taste, a little, you know, like wet, you know, wet, wet their palates a little bit so that they know what's coming out. Now, the new research, what have you found? Just give, give us a little taste on that. Is, this is the current research I'm doing. Well, it's um, a lot of it, is, or a considerable amount of it, is to do with um, the paintings that Mr. Hill did at the British, or that are now in the British Museum. Um, there's a lot of evidence in those paintings um, that their marks are those marks are fraudulent. Okay. I can't say any more than that. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> and there's a whole load of other stuff that I've um, that I've um, un- uncovered. You know. Um, well, but, okay. Well, g- give us an idea. When is the book coming out? Well, I, I'm. Honestly, just now, Chris, it's really very much the research stage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's you know I haven't even began. Obviously, I'm writing my notes and stuff, but um, I've not even began to structure the book. I haven't even you know began to 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 write the first paragraph of it yet. Oh but you know it's definitely um, you know it's definitely in the the pipeline. Um, but it's probably you know at least at least two, maybe even three years away, you know, it's that early in, in, in the process. You know, the the last book, or the current book, I should say, The Great Pyramid Hoax, you know, that, that, that's been on the go for, you know, probably about four years, or, or and it only just came out um, a few months ago, you know. So that's, um, it's a lot of research goes into these <laughs> these things, obviously. <laughs> Well, 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 Scott, um, when the book comes out, and we're, we're going to keep you on the line for a bit here, I know, I know we're going to be going into our last uh, segment here for the show. When the book comes Ancient out... Ancient Aliens! Oh, God in heaven. Okay, that's actually one thing I want to talk, because we're, we're, we're trying to get... Um, I'm trying to make sure that, that Denver is um, is uh, ready for... We, we do this entire sandwich contest. Uh, the, the basic premise is... Uh, one of our good friends for the show, he is a cryptozoologist, uh, and he goes out in the field a lot. So we want to make sure he's very well fed. So we're sending, we're, we asked our listeners to send us in sandwich recipes that he will try out while he's out in the field. <laughs> and then he's going to grade them in the person who has the best sandwich wins. So that's our last segment of, of the show. <laughs> I, I think we, we could segue into monotomic field sky balloons oh god in heaven not the monotomic gold again <laughs> damn it alex um okay here's another thing with the water pump theory It'll what come. is what what is your 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 idea on that you've been to the pyramid you've been there what is your your thoughts on the pyramid as a water pump or the function um of the well my own view is um I, I think um was it cadman that um proposed john? that we actually John have, Cadman. Yeah, we have yeah. one next week. Yeah, um, that proposed that theory. He made a working model. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a ram, a ram pump, something yep. like that. Um, yeah, but works, you know. Um, he's done a small working model. Would it work in you know something like the the pyramid? I I, I don't know. Um, you know what 
you know, what was the per- what I would ask is um, why, you know, haven't all the pyramids been designed like that? You know, you know, were they all pumps? And uh, you know, is it just a great pyramid that, that's a pump? I would say. You know, why? Why? Like, why wouldn't all the pyramids be a pump? Anchor water is not an irrigation system. Oh no! But, but <laughs> at the same time, like uh, uh, I think it's Doug Keenan who's. Uh, a Patreon of the show, and again, I'm not going to talk well of him because he's a Patreon of the show, but at the same time, he did state the possibility of um, that the Great Pyramid using the whatever it did <laughs> essentially was the center, whereas a conference pyramid was a receiver to try and um, create a machine to essentially map or like use it as a as an x-ray machine like not an extra machine but like a radar machine to map the size of the inner solar system as it were mm. like kind of an as, uh, of an astronomical device now, it, the first hadron collider <sighs> at the same time uh, like we've had Baval on the like well I should say I had Baval on the show I had a, a an impromptu um, uh, show with him a couple weeks ago and he stated there's a possibility that the pyramid was just like a 3d printed uh, you know, like a, a a blueprint, kind of like a, a a machine that we should build in the future. So there, there's all of these theories. Yeah, but the thing is, pro- though, the thing is, though, Chris, um, mm-hmm. I think I think what you know, any theorist um, has to properly do is to consider not just the Great Pyramid; they have to consider all the pyramids. This is what I'm saying. My my last book was the Secret Chamber of not my last book, my my current book's The Great Pyramid Hoax. The one before that, uh, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, The Lost Knowledge of the 16 Pyramids. You know, so I'm talking about all the pyramids that were built in the Old Kingdom. You know, the very first 16 pyramids that were built. And I explain why they were all built, not just one of them, The Great Pyramid. You know, and any theorist has to do the same. They can't just pick the Great Pyramid because, oh, it's the most mysterious, it's the most intricate and complex pyramid. They have to explain, you know, <laughs> you know, there's G2, that's the second pyramid at Giza. You know, that's just, almost just as big as the Great Pyramid. Not quite as complex inside, but it's almost just as massive a project as the Great Pyramid. You know, you have to explain, and there's, there's other pyramids, you know, that a bit smaller, but not that much smaller than the Great Pyramid, you know, at Dashur and places like that. You know, so, you, you know, any theory has to explain the entire culture, the, the reason why they built all these mm-hmm. pyramids, not just one of them. And that's what I try to do um, in, in my work. And that's kind of the main reason why we wanted in the show, because you actually do kind of tie all that in. Yeah, the function was. (laughs) Everyone has a different theory, but still. Well, well, if you look at um, you know what the ancient Egyptians um, tell us, um, you know you have um, there's this alternative. There's an alternative narrative that's been handed down to us about um, the pyramids, Um, and this basically comes from Arabic sources. Okay. Now we don't really know how old these stories are, but my guess is that they're probably tens of thousands of years old. Because, in my opinion, the pyramids, um, the first sixteen pyramids, anyway, the giant pyramids of ancient Egypt, are at least twenty thousand years old. Okay, they are much much older 
than conventional Egyptologists tell us. They're older than even Hancock or Baval. They go back to maybe 11,500 years ago, 10,500 BC, something like that. You know, they're even older than that, okay? Let's, let's say granted. What were they used for 20,000 years ago? Okay, they were basically um, a, a recovery system for, not for the king, although this is a misconception that Egyptologists have made, that the, the pyramids were the rebirth machine, if you like, for the king's soul. They weren't. They were, the re they were rebirth machines, yeah, but not for the king, but for the kingdom, okay? The ancient Egyptians believed um, that their kingdom was... Um, basically going to be destroyed by a massive inundation, a great flood. And the ancient Egyptians have got texts that talk about this, okay? And there was a king, Saurid, when something basically happened in the sky. The stars moved out of their normal course across the sky. And the king, the ancient Egyptian king, Saurid, he asked his astronomer priest, what does this mean? What does this mean? And they said, in 300 years' time, there will be a flood which will destroy the entire kingdom. Okay? And the king, Saurid, said, okay, in that case, we are going to build pyramids, giant pyramids that can withstand, you know, the worst effects of this flood. And they're going to be so strong, they can withstand the waters of this flood. And inside these pyramids, we are going to place everything that the kingdom needs to be reborn again after the worst effects of this flood have come to pass. And they would, inside these pyramids, they, they would put all manner of uh, seed types, um, grains, you know, all, all different grains, all different seeds. They would put all different pots and tools, weapons even, knowledge. They would build into these pyramids and place everything within them, like a capsule, yeah? Now, it's not such a strange idea because our own civilization has very recently done something very similar. Up in Svalbard, um, in the Arctic Circle, there's a global seed vault. And I think it was opened in 2008. And inside that, we have placed every single seed type there is in the world inside that vault. And we've sealed it. Now, I don't know. Well, in, it's been done in case of some natural disaster or some man-made disaster to the earth. So our own civilization has done the very same thing that the ancient Egyptians um, have done as well. I explain all this in um, the secret chamber of, of Osiris. But the thing is as well, if you look at the actual evidence, what you find is below the, the very first pyramid, they found massive amounts of grain. You know, that's the step, the step pyramid at Saqqara. The very first explorers of that in the early 20th century, they were walking up to their knees mm -hmm. in grain through all the passageways underneath that pyramid. They found thousands, tens of thousands of pots and tools and all sorts of things under that pyramid. These were found in galleries, um, you know, that probably um, hadn't quite been opened but were o in ancient times, but were opened in more recent times. Okay, so the Great Pyramid, there's secondary evidence that it once stored massive amounts of grain. And this is probably where this whole idea of the pyramids as the, you know, the uh, Jacob's um, granaries came from. 
it's it's just become mixed up. They weren't granaries per se. They were seed vaults, not to feed the entire country. We're not saying that because that's not, I think, what the Egyptians believed with this particular narrative. That it's enough to restart the civilization again, you know, because they, they believe most of it would probably be destroyed. And this is why you find all these boat pits around these pyramids. You know, there's boat pits all over the Giza Plateau because they were anticipating a flood. Mm-hmm. You know, this you know, so this is the other narrative that has come down to us about why these from the Egyptians themselves, but you never hear about it because these Egyptologists they poo-poo it, they don't they think it's you know, well that's just nonsense because we know they were tombs. You know, well, they may well have been used as tombs later, but that was absolutely not the original function of these pyramids. They may well have been used. I mean, Cadillacs have been used for burial, for goodness sake, but we can't say a Cadillac was designed for burial, you know? How come we don't see a pyramid on, like, K2 or uh, way up in the mountains, I suppose? Because people would die from hot air, hot air balloons can't get there, Chris. Deprivation. <laughs> I guess so. Well, the you, thing you'd keep the their thing, grain cool, though, if you kept it up on the mountain. Well, that, that's the thing about the pyramid design, um, mm. Alex. The inside of a pyramid, the temperature is stable. It doesn't need to be warm. It doesn't need to be cool. As long as it's stable, if it, the temperature fluctuates. That's what causes you know seeds to germinate. It's a fluctuation in temperature, not. The, where it's cold or, or hot, it's a fluctuation. Yeah. What's so, the temperature inside the pyramid these days? Oh, it's 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 fairly warm. <laughs> I have to say, it's, seeds it's, will, it's most seeds will germinate like twenty eight degrees Celsius. They're yeah, and they're off. Yeah. the The thing though nowadays is this, is the pyramids are are open. Yeah, they're open to the elements. You know, the passageways are open. You know, so the the conditions inside them, you know, will be um, you know. Much, much different than they were originally. And what you find as well, that the exteriors of the pyramids were once pure white with this white Tudor limestone cladding. And that would reflect a lot of the sunlight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to keep the, the, the temperature inside, you know, fairly cool. You know, so, um, did, you know, this... Did the Egyptians the, have any sort of like tubing systems to put heat into these balloons? Sorry, I didn't catch that, Alex. If, if, uh, for the, this hot hot balloon theory, is there any sort of like uh, Egyptian tubes that they would have put the heat up into the balloons with, or maybe I'm getting us off track here? But and I'm the one who's drinking scotch all night. <laughs> I did, sorry, I didn't quite. You were saying something to put the heat in uh, the balloon apologies scott I, I, getting him to speak into the microphone clearly and loudly <clears> is one of the things i've been trying to get him to, to, to get used to for four months now <laughs> well ba- basically they would, they would have these pits these go. deep pits which the the obviously the balloon um material would go over these deep pits and remember these pits are about 20 feet deep so the fire is well below and then that would keep the flame away from the material to stop it going up in smoke mm-hmm. um so you know so that, the, the other okay. thing about the pyramid the other Thank thing you. is you said alex about you know you know storing you know the, the stuff in mountains that's what we have done in svalbard and it's a pretty daft idea because 
if something really does happen, the only way we can recognise Svalbard is because of the, the entranceway that has been made. It's a, a long geometric um, sort of um, entrance corridor that they've built onto this, the, the front of this mountain. Now, if that gets covered in a, in a rock fall, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if there's a great earthquake and that gets covered in a rockfall, you're, you know, if somebody goes there to, to find a place, they'll never see it. Whereas if you make an artificial mountain, you're going to notice that for miles in every direction. Whereas a natural mountain can get lost in the landscape. You would need, you know, it can easily get lost, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you build, you know, an artificial mountain, as I said, you're going to find it pretty easily. And, you know, this is the other silly thing about, you know, the orthodox theory. These pyramids were supposed to protect the king's body. And here here you have them, you know, they can be seen for like 50 miles in every direction. You know, know, to every tomb raider in the land, here, guys, here's the king's body. Come and get it. Come and get the treasure. (laughs) You know, it just makes no sense. It's stupid. Not exactly. (laughs) Makes sense. Well, 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 Scott, we're, we're going to leave it at that just because, oh my goodness, I, I'm going to have a hard time. Leverage now. nature. Oh, it geez. always comes back to that for me. So anyway, you have my theory of, of why the pyramids were built. <laughs> you know, and I explained that in my my previous book, The Secret Chamber of Osiris. Well, well, well Scott, that, that's awesome. And again, check uh, Scott Crichton on Amazon. Please do check those books out because holy shit. One of the most well-researched men on the planet when it comes to ancient Egypt in our time. Um, and, yeah, his latest book is afforded uh, by Laird Scranton, who's a good friend of the show. And I'm going to be reading this book all weekend again because it is that damn good. So, Scott, I want to thank you very much for joining the show with us today. Thank you so much for <laughs> putting your body through the late night uh, next time we're on the show, we will do an afternoon show, so it's evening for you. And um, Alex, do you have anything to add? You're <laughs> smiling at me with that beautiful smile of yours. N- nothing constructive. <laughs> nothing constructive. <laughs> <laughs> My brain's going a mile a minute here. I'm like, I'd put the seeds in the balloon instead of in a pyramid. Like, but yeah, it's an interesting theory. Well, guys, it's been a blast. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed the show tonight. Um, we're a good couple of hosts, and we've had a couple of good laughs along the way. So that's that always <laughs> makes it, um, you know, much more <laughs> um, enjoyable. A more fun. So thanks, thanks, thanks for that. It's a much, it's it's much pleasure. And uh, again, I will, uh, I will send you a link when the uh, you when the MP3 is sent out, and uh, we'll uh, we we will talk via email. And again, if you're on Facebook, are you on Facebook? I refuse to join Facebook. Good man. Uh, so I, I will send you an email when it's sent out, and we'll we'll connect that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Scott. Have yourself a good night. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I'm off to bed. I'll see you guys sometime soon. Take care. Now. It was Bye-bye. a pleasure. Take, Thanks, take care. Okay, so uh, I'm going to bring uh, Denver in here. I'm, well, we have like all this new music now. Oh my God, we have new music on the show, and I'm like waving my hands. Wait, wait, wait. wait so the, Who do we have? We have, to we thank? have new music now. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, uh, uh, the minutes. There we go. Doesn't sound like Happy Birthday. No, sorry. Wait, wait. Join the restaurant. There we go. So I'm, I'm going to bring uh, Denver on the show the and uh, so Venice, good. actually. 
This is sandwich making music. It, exactly, it is. Smooth I know, right? Smooth jazz. <clears throat> you just taking the pastrami out of the deli container in your fridge. My people. So this is the sandwich contest segment. Thank you very much for listening to Scott Crichton. Hello, Denver. Denver. Hello. Hello, Denver. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you fine. We, we have uh, fantastic uh, new music for you, actually. Oh, sweet. Um, ju- just uh, just let you know, we're going to have Venice from uh, Magical Egypt 2 joining us for this segment. Okay. Um, but so I'm waiting for her to... Let's, to uh, bring her in. Well, I'm waiting to. Hello, Venice. Hello, my love. <laughs> Hello, uh, I'm, I, j- just to be able... Yeah, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Um... Uh, well, we have to do our sandwich segment. Yes. Yes. Of so, course. Okay. Perfect. So, so Denver, Denver. Um, this is the sandwich segment. Now, if you're wondering what the sandwich segment is, um, we have been <laughs> asking our listeners to send us sandwich recipes, whether it's your tuna fish recipe, <laughs> your meatball sub recipe, your peanut butter and jelly sandwich recipe, to feed our cryptozoologist in the field. Denver fucking Michaels. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we want to feed him to make sure he is well equipped while he is researching Bigfoot and Mothman and Chupacabra or whatever else he's doing at the time. Either way, um, this is why we have this amazing music <laughs> to, be able to, to be able to do this show. Now, we have had many of our listeners who have, um, uh, again, Kevin being one of them, Kevin being another, and Ellen being another entry into uh, the sandwich contest. So send your sandwich recipe into info with denoflore.com or uh, via in, you know, Facebook or at, um, Persia, you- search Den of Lore Facebook, Den, just, you can find us, we're easy. Um, now, now, we have a new sandwich recipe that was sent in, and I wanted to ask Denver what his update on the sandwiches were. Okay, yeah, we got we got an official one, and there was a, there was another one that I uh, wrote down from the chat room, so um, I'll start with the official. This was from Nick, and it was a classic BLT with peanut butter laid out like this bread mayo lettuce tomato bacon peanut butter bread so as far as this sandwich goes i mean i don't love blts because i don't like um the big soggy ass piece of tomato on them it it just makes them soggy and gross so um so we'll start with that, but yeah, you know, I can kind of get past that. But what really messed it up was the peanut butter. I mean, you don't put peanut butter and mayonnaise together. It's just absolutely disgusting. So, um, yeah, he um, so, he said in the in the email to prepare yourself for deliciousness. But um, I think this sandwich was just a troll job. Um, I give it a three out of ten. <laughs> Uh, again, this is your fault for saying the worst sandwich gets a free book. Like, yeah, oh, Jesus yeah, I know. I, I I screwed myself over with that. I was I was trying to be nice, but uh, yeah, I'm Venice, getting trolled pretty heavily. Venice, you cannot <laughs> enter the contest. You are part of the staff. Your cucumber and cream cheese sandwich is void and null. You're part of the <laughs> oh, Magical God. Egypt Society. 
I'm sorry, you're like upper echelon here, so I'm, I, I have to disqualify That's right, you. It's, it's for the sophisticated adventure, my love. Oh, God. <laughs> you have to eat it with your little pinky stuck out. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> See, there, was, there was one sandwich that I wrote down. Um, yeah, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before um, in the live chat. Uh, Jared Thompson's uh, had uh, avocado, egg, bacon, and tomato. So this sandwich... This is really good. This is um, this is a lot of the uh, ingredients that I love. I love avocado. I love eggs. I love bacon. So um, this sandwich probably could have been a nine, but I don't like soggy ass pieces of tomato on my sandwich, so I gave it an eight point five. Fuck that soggy ass shit. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, a big old piece of tomato, just it just ruins a hamburger or sandwich. I don't know why people do it. Well, you know, that's good to know. So, okay, so who's... Who, give me the top two and the last place right now. As far as who, okay. who's... who's Because I'm getting slammed in YouTube chat, and oh my God, they, they want to know. They're like, I want to know sandwiches. Like, what, well, what's going on? Ellen still has firm uh, a firm hold of um, last place. So Ellen is still in last. Um, Kevin from Nebraska with the buffalo chicken grilled cheese is still in the lead. And the uh, second place sandwich is a tie between um, Kevin from the it's Kevin Stevens, I think. Kevin from the UK with yep. his homemade uh, jam and peanut butter. And uh, Jared Thompson's sandwich that I just mentioned just now, the avocado, now, egg, and bacon. Now, I have to say that Jared Thompson is, like, traveling all over the southern, like, the South America right now. I do not know where he is on, on a constant basis. Now, Jared, I talk to you on a regular basis. If you win in the top two, like, you have to tell me where to send these books because you could be anywhere. And the pictures I'm getting from you is like fucking delicious food in tropical places you lucky son of a bitch because I'm dealing with snow for like the last two months I'm very angry actually because we we've had shitty snow here it's bad this music is I'm sorry this music is so fitting it's awesome I'm I'm, I'm laughing too hard here <laughs> sorry continuing on okay so fantastic so um ladies and gentlemen this contest is going to run until we have a final date now Go on. Go on. I'm sorry, the music is just too good. Um, <laughs> we are running the last. The, the last contest is going to be. <laughs> Stop playing piano, please. <laughs> May 25th, 2017. That is our last episode. So the the date closes. Um, I, I will I will take entries until June 2nd. After June, sorry, June. Just it's one day, June 2nd. Like, fuck, June 2nd. We will announce on June 8th. <coughs> June 8th is our sandwich, sandwich date. I'm putting the calendar now. We're going to need some photos from Denver at some point. He, he puts the videos on Twitter. You don't, you don't follow the Twitter. Yeah, I've, okay. I've kind of slacked up on the photos. I've been very busy here lately. I've been taking the kids on some college tours and things like that. So I've, I've not had hardly any free time. But, yeah, I'll, as soon as i got a little bit of free time, I'll uh, post some pictures on Twitter. Now, Denver, we very much appreciate you being a very good sport about this entire thing. Um, it's 
probably the most unique contest run ever <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> um, Next year, chili contest. Oh, sh oh no, God, no. I, I will beat you all. I swear to God. I've got, like, mm. this ghost pepper chili con, like, shit that I'm going to bring to Lodge next week. We have, like, a chili cook-off. Denver's going to just, he's not going to be able to pick up Skype. He's going to be in the washroom. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, guys, sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Go on Sasquatching. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it, it, one thing is that I, I do notice is that uh, your book is released uh, on uh, the beginning of the month. Right. Now, uh, I've, I've started to read the book. And I've given my mother the book. And actually, Kevin from Nebraska, you um, jumped the gun, son of a gun. He got his hard copy already. And now he wants a signed copy. But at the same time, that shows dead of fucking Cation. Yeah, I, I was really, really, uh, really pleased that, uh, you know, with the, with the support I've got. So I'm, I'm really happy and I, I hope that, uh, you know, people check it out and hopefully they like it. Well, you know, I, I like it so far, and uh, as my mom always says, have that Denver Michaels boy on more often, because his voice <laughs> is just so goddamn smooth. The, the book after this book will be a book of sandwiches. If you are not audio, like, if you're not narrating your own audiobook, I'll be very angry. Very angry. <laughs> yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> well, you know, if you come up to Canada, we have an entire recording studio right here in the Den of Lore. Yeah, it's a couple-minute drive from my oh, house. shit. <laughs> well, you, you never know. You never know. You never know. Um, we've, we've got... Okay, good enough. So, send your sandwich recipes into info at denoflore.com. Info at denoflore.com. Or at... Just tweet us at denoflore. Or at Facebook at denoflore. Or on... Anywhere at denoflore. Pretty much just search denoflore. Send us a message... Throw a rock through our window. We're, we're good. Just give us that sandwich recipe so we can get you some free shit. Because Denver needs to feed while out on the f uh, well out on the farm, searching for. I'm, try I'm trying to find words that, that rhyme. It's my birthday. I'm drunk. So sue me. Um, Denver needs food so that he can get us this those Sasquatch photos, those Mothman photos. Those water monster photos. Send your sandwich recipes into thedenoflore.com. Also, send him a 4K camera. That, yeah, that, that'll be good. Would a 4K camera help you? The future is now. When we help him sell enough books, he'll have a 4K <laughs> camera. And it'll be a win-win. Oh, my God. <laughs> Denver, you've been a fantastic sport on this episode. Thank you very much. Uh, for our current entries, uh, again, we've got another month and a half or a bit or to left until we announce the winner. But still, send your recipe into infoadenoflore.com so we can get you some free shit. And we're going to talk Magical Egypt 2 in just a second. Uh, Den, if you want to stay on the line. Venice, my love, are you still there? Yes, I am, my dear. And I am willing to give away a free Magical Egypt 2 episode 1 for the best cocktail recipe. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> um, yes, indeed. I am, we're a big fan of cocktails over here at the Magical Egypt headquarters. Okay, so so, so you grab a, uh, a Glencairn, or any glass, really. Uh, you put some, <laughs> some ice in it, and um, uh, uh, some space side, usually Glenfiddich 14, 15, maybe 18 year if you really want to splurge, and there's your cocktail. 
It's fun. I've got one for you. <laughs> I've got one for you. Are you ready? See, that doesn't count, darling. I think a cocktail requires more than one ingredient uh, uh, for it to qualify. <laughs> I've got one. It's called the British Sunburn. And All right. What's you, that, darling? You mix gin with Malibu rum in about a 50-50 wow. ratio. And it's going to taste like you know, sunscreen. Um, Chance might actually uh, give you two thumbs up for that because gin and Malibu are two of his favorite ingredients. <laughs> Just... <laughs> now, but it sounds it's like a weird combo. It's a weird combo. Okay, uh, for, for, for Chance, now, this is one thing. Send him a message that, that I am actually going to be doing a full... Because okay, I know the last time we did like a Magical Egypt... Um, fight companion. We got about like five minutes into one, and then it was, well, Randall Carlson took over. A lot of us were drunk or stoned or what have you. Or again, I well, I was on scotch, and <laughs> it was yeah. But, Indeed. So I would like to be able to get him to kind of do like a lunch and learn, like you know, like or an evening and dinner and learn. Let him know that sure. I, I would like him on board for narrating, like a kind of a a magical Egypt. You know, to be able to help support the program, to help be able to support the new release of Magical Leader 2. It's available soon. Go check out MagicalLeader.com. Sunday. Sunday, my love. Oh, my oh, God. Sarah, Easter Sunday. It will Easter finally <clears throat> actually bring it to fruition, which is just a miracle as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, yes, very, very soon indeed. Well, let him know that um, um, whenever he's available, I, I would like to be able to, to talk to him because... It's one thing to be able to like do a uh, magical Egypt style narration, but having the man who did the actual compilation of it is like that. That that's just kind of like a dream come true. Like that's <laughs> like I, I'm sorry. I mean, like, he would love that. He would absolutely love that. I'm sure. And um, it's you know it, it's uh, something that is very very dear to his heart and. He is very, very passionate about it, so I can't imagine anything more fun than him. And I know these new, this new series in particular um, is something, you know, the, I mean, of, of course, the old series was 15 years ago, and um, it was an amazing thing. It was really a kind of a paradigm-shifting effort, really, when you look back at the history of kind of Egyptian um, documentaries. But this one, um, 15 years more further on with his research that he's been doing into the art and the things that he's been able to find and the people that he's been collaborating with um, it really is I can't wait to unleash it on the world <laughs> it really is going to be very very exciting darling and we're eagerly awaiting so again for all the individuals watching at home um, I'm very bad at this whole like camera thing, so let me go. Okay, so wait, wait, right over here. Okay, so you see this here? It says save 10%, Magic yes. Egypt 2, forward yes, slash so connection. Yes, it will, any fans of Den of Law will give you 10% off if you mention the keyword scotch. Scotch and you can buy it as a one-off. You can buy the whole series. You can buy, uh, you know, just a DVD or a digital download and stream it. But yes, because you guys have supported us so much and you've interviewed so many of our people, we want to support your listeners with a, a 10% off coupon. Absolutely, my love. And Venice, you are probably one of the most adorable, amazing, loving people that have, we've ever had on this show. 
and you've been such a big supporter of us, and we thank you very much. It is, uh, like, honestly, it's like, from, from somebody who got into this as just like, I'm going to start a podcast, and it's like, I'm talking to Venice from fucking Magical Egypt 2. It's like, this is awesome, but you are one of the kindest, most gentle people I've ever met in my entire life, and we are so glad to support you and Ch- uh, Chance's efforts and John Anthony West and everybody because everyone, it, it's, it, it's an amazing community. It, it, is the... it is, sweetheart. And honestly, what you're doing really is so wonderful. And I have to say, I've so much enjoyed, you know, your podcast. And, and look, this is a really interesting space because we have everything from kind of, um, you know, really legitimate researchers to people that kind of come into this space with these fantastic, like ridiculous, you know, ideas. And, and to have a group like yourselves that are discriminating you know and that actually ask the hard questions and pick guests that really have quality information to share is really something that is very worthwhile in this space and so anything I can do to support you as well um, you know I will because I I think that you guys have your head screwed on the right way and you know the discernment and and the quality of information that you're delivering is really valuable to our space so thank you for your service and I will support you as much as they can. Dan, Dan, I can hear you typing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm bad, yo. (laughs) Anything could happen to the dead of lore. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm, you know, we actually have new uh, outro music, so um, uh, let me let me go through the list here. So I've got um, join the restaurant is what's playing right now. (laughs) Uh, We have the minutes, a moment. Salias, scatter knowledge. You, what was the one you put on right before this one? That was the minutes. Let's do that. Okay, so I'm gonna play the minutes as the outro song. Let me just like fade this out here. Denver, you have, <laughs> you've got theme music now. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, no, that's the wrong one. Uh, there we go. No, wrong one. That's the wrong one. There we go. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to The Den of Lore. I am your host, Chris George Zuger, and across the table from me is Big Sexy Alex. We're going to take this clown out for his birthday, so we're going to have to let you people go, but tune in next week. Tonight, we go hard, motherfuckers. Same Ooh, den shit. channel. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, to uh, uh, and Mercury Lounge for hosting my birthday party. Oh, shit, you have. <laughs> There's a reason why they call it Mr. Friday Night. But it's Thursday night, so we'll 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 we'll, we'll segue that a day earlier. But either way, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much to Scott Crichton for being an amazing guest, um, Denver for being an awesome fucking guy, because Denver's an awesome fucking guy, and for Finise for helping us out and being as amazing as she is. Uh, to El McCurdy, to Wayne, to Doug, you are all of our you know supporters, and for you know Kevin. For for everyone out there who listens to the show, we do the show because you love it and because we love the fucking bring it to you. And uh, I want to say thank you very much for listening to the Den of Lore and for making this the most fucking fun show to do on the planet. Chill out, drink some fucking scotch, have some vape, and enjoy.